Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 32 to 48. It's, it's a significant Gospel, and, and maybe we can do something with it that's, that's a little bit different than usual, because you take the Gospel as a whole, and it has a phenomenally clear picture of the Church in all of its different parts, in all of its different dimensions. And so maybe we could go in that direction today, and, and maybe that might be helpful in any kind of particular or, uh, or way of exegeting the individual parts of the text. And so to get, to get ourselves there, let's, let's look at the, at the gospel itself. Jesus says to his disciples, There is no need to be afraid, little flock, for it has pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. This Jesus is now speaking to the twelve. And he says, Sell your possessions and give alms. Get yourselves purses that do not wear out, treasure that will not fail you in heaven, where no thief can reach it and no moth destroy it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. This text is is considered to be, within the Gospel of Luke, what is called an eschatological text. It's a text having to deal with the consequences of life and not with the necessary right now parts of life, except how do you get there. And Jesus is saying, rely on me completely and don't rely on anything else. And then he says, see that you are dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like men waiting for their master to return from the wedding feast, ready to open the door as soon as he comes and he knocks. And so, once again, this is about the second coming. And he says, happy those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. I tell you solemnly, he will put on an apron, sit down at a table and wait on them. It may be in the second watch when it comes or the third, but happy those servants if he finds them ready. You may be quite sure of this, that if the householder had known at what hour the burglar would come, he would not have let anyone break through the wall of his house. You too must stand ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the implication for the church in all of this is that, and once again I think it's necessary, it's important to point out, that one of the great radical changes of the, of the Reformation in the 16th century, and therefore of, of the Protestant tradition, is the individualization of the theological interpretation of the scriptures. And for Catholicism and for early Christianity, it was not so. In Catholicism and for early Christianity, it had to do with the church as a community, with the church as a whole, with the church as a people. And so all the various and distinctive parts that go into making up the church are part of the wholeness of the church. And here we have, you know, um, here we have an admonition to sell your possessions and give alms. Um, Well, can everyone sell their possessions and can everyone, you know, give alms? Most people can give alms of some kind. But not everyone is in a, in a position to sell their position, their possessions. 
So what does that mean then? How do we, how do we deal with that? It only makes sense if we take the picture of the church as a whole. Because the various parts and pieces that make up the wholeness of the church, in a way it's kind of like the human person, that we have various parts and pieces of our, of our constitution, and any of them missing makes us less than, than whole, less than, than what we were supposed to be. Um, missing an organ, missing an arm, a leg, an eye, an ear, so forth, whatever. We know that that gives a sense of incompleteness. And uh, while it happens to many people, and many people valiantly adjust to those kinds of things, they become acutely aware, too, of the fact of what they don't have. And so, here, can everyone sell possessions? No. In the book of the Acts of the Apostles, especially of of the communalism of the Jerusalem community, they held all things in common. And we know the famous story of... Annas and Sapphira, who, who uh, sold their property and didn't give the, the, the money to the church. And they were struck, struck, struck dead. Um, because this was seen as a violation of the primitive understanding of the gospel and the communalism of the understanding and the notion of the church. But as the church expanded into Gentile territories outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Palestinian area, it began to become so impractical that it could not really be lived and have the church survive. You know, it's something like the law of celibacy in the church, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, um, but actually, um, like the, the uh, Shakers, they, they read in the gospel, you know, um, to live unmarried and to, and to, and to live, uh, you know, celibately. St. Paul says that. Um, And so that's what they did. And the result of it is, of course, they died out. And uh, as far as I know, there's only one small community left somewhere, I think, in Maine. But while it was a noble experiment, it was an experiment that was foolhardy because it did not see the community of the church as a whole. He saw it, they saw it as a collection of individuals. And to see it as a collection of individuals is to individualize the theology of the church. And to do that is to miss the point. So that can some people live without possessions? Yes, they can. Did they in the primitive church? Yes, they did. Was it possible to transport that into the Gentile world? No, it wasn't. And when you began to have large numbers of of converts in Rome and up into Greece and all those other places... And we know from the apostles even into India and Armenia and perhaps even Spain, um, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't place that obligation on people when it is seen as a piece of the whole, when it's seen as an ideal. And so <clears throat> Jesus is then saying, that doesn't mean the ideals of the church can't be lived, but it means that they're lived as a whole and not every individual participating in every charism. Um, and then when he goes when Jesus goes on and he says you know be happy when when you when you know that the master is gone Jesus is crucified he has risen from the dead he has ascended into heaven he is no longer in the same way present to the church as he was before 
And early on, there were eschatological communities waiting and waiting. Paul even chastises them in, in Second Thessalonians, saying, yeah, you've heard the Lord is coming again, so you're sitting around waiting and not doing anything. And he said, if you won't work, you shouldn't be able to eat. So get up because you don't know the day or the hour. And Peter tells us, <clears throat> you know, um, a day a day for the Lord is like a thousand years for ourselves. So we have no idea when the Lord is returning. And we certainly can look at the church and we can see it in its non-eschatological um, ages. And we find all sorts of abuse. We found abuse in the contemporary church. People who did not think that they had to be accountable um, for what they had done or that they would have time to repent. It's like in the... Uh, in the gospel that we read for last week. Um, and God says to them, you fool, today your soul will be demanded of you. We have to be constantly ready and constantly uh, prepared for the coming of the Lord. And then he goes on, and Peter said to the Lord, do you mean this parable for us or for everyone? And Jesus replied, what sort of steward then is faithful and wise enough for the master to place him over the household to give them their allowance of food in the proper time? And so he goes on then to say that my master is taking, if, but if the servant says my master is taking his time and sets about beating uh, the men's servants and the maids and eating and drinking and getting drunk, his master will come on a day he does not expect and an hour he does not know. And the master will cut him off and send him to the same fate as the unfaithful. And so we, we have now to put together a picture we have, first of all, an overarching idea that the church exists in order to prepare humanity for the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. If we don't have at least a small suspicion that that might be imminent in our lives, it makes it more and more difficult for us to live our lives well and for us really to trust in the word of the Lord and for us to see the purpose of the church. Many people drift away from the church. Many do because they have individualized their theology. They have individualized their faith to such a degree that they become the sole object of the believing community, the, sole, the, the only believing community of the self. And it's so easy to get disillusioned at that. And it's so easy then to become angry because while you've put yourself in control and in charge of everything, you know, you can't make it happen. And it's the same way with people who leave because they're, they're, they're mad at a priest or, they're, or, they're, or they prayed and God did not, you know, and did not um, give them what they asked for. Or in the course of, of their Catholic education years ago, um, they, they had some kind of issue or problem with one of the sisters. And, uh, and so, well, that's enough for me. I'm out of here. You see, that's not Catholic. Catholicism embraces the totality, aware of the fact that there is infidelity within it, and that um, unhappy the man who, who eats and drinks and beats his servants and so forth. In other words, who lives an unruly life, because when the Lord comes, he's unprepared. And when the Lord comes, that segment of our society, Jesus says, is lost which is why there's an urgency to evangelization and an urgency to the gospel. But going back now to the pieces of the community, sell your possessions, 
All right, can we all do that? We looked at that. No, we can't. Can some do that? Yes, some can. And they become an essential component of the life of the whole church as a full body, as a whole person, mystical person of Christ. And so we have people then who, from the very earliest days, gave up all their personal possessions. We had the early Desert Fathers. We had the the beginning of, of uh, communal monasticism with St. Pacomius in, in, the, in the third century. And then that developed in, through that kind of asceticism and that kind of denial. Um, it moved into the, into the formal monasticism of the Western world, where people give up everything and live communally, and whatever they have belongs to the whole. So the ideal of the early Christian community is the foundation of religious life in the church. Without religious life, we don't have the witness to the primeval church. We don't have the witness to the fidelity of the original vision of Christianity. We don't have fidelity to what the Lord has asked of us. If part of the whole is living the ideal as it appeared in the early church, then we have a health in the body. We have an anchor. We have some place that gives life to the rest of us. And, um, and so this idea that when religious life loses that sense, then it loses its purpose. Um, we watch the enormous sacrifices of, um, of some of the early religious women, especially in the United States, um, in the vast territories that they covered. We have, we have uh, from Ohio, Sister Blandina Sagali, um, a great sister of charity, a great missionary in the southwestern part of the country. We have the phenomenal missionary work of the Sisters of Mercy in the northern part of the east and, uh, <clears throat> and throughout the Midwest and into Nebraska and San Francisco and beyond. We have one of the Syracuse Franciscans as the one who went over and, and, and helped Father Damien and took over the leper colony for Father Damien and uh, <clears throat> suffered the same fate as Father Damien did. We have these phenomenal sacrifices that are being made and have been made in order to build up the body of the church. On the other hand, too, we have celibacy in the church. And we're hearing now, you know, that, well, the abuse thing, all the abuse thing is because of celibacy, which is, which is nonsensical. Um, the abuse thing is much broader than, than the Catholic clergy. And it's just in this age of anti-Catholicism, it's a time and a place to use it, to focus it on us. Part of all because more, because Jesus also said, to whom much has been given, much will be expected. Much has been given to the priesthood, much will be expected of it. And its failure is therefore more serious than other failures. But it is not different in kind or in genre. So basically, then what we find is that to give celibacy, but you know, we could make the we could make the 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 mistake of the Shakers and say, well, that means everybody has to be celibate. When Paul says, you know, you're better off not being married, um, then that means everybody's celibate. Fine, the Shakers died out. So would have Christianity. That's absurd. That's not part of who we are. But celibacy is a part of the whole. It's part of the eschatological witness. Why would you give up? a wife, a husband, and a family 
um, if you didn't believe somehow or other that this was an important witness within the church to a trust and a confidence in the coming of the kingdom, that if you are not living for the future as a celibate, then you're not living it well. And I think if you're not living it as a witness to the church, as a gift to the church of a witness to belief in this in a life after death, then what is it? It becomes then what we have always been accused. I remember reading in some kind of um, evangelical tirade many, many years ago, half a century ago at least, an article um, of some some preacher, you know, railing somewhere out in the Middle West about Catholics actually practice celibacy in public. Um, I don't know what he meant by that, but he did know that it was something that he didn't like. And it isn't something that's acceptable in the world, and it isn't something that is honored or revered in the world. But that's the very reason that we have to have it within the church, because it is a component of the church. Jesus was a celibate. Paul was a celibate. Um, We don't know about all the apostles. John certainly seems to have been. It's an important part of the whole, because if nobody did it, you would have a very hard time in the church, allowing the church to preach about we should be living our lives for the future. So that we have the monastic religious ideal of the giving away of the possessions. We have the, the religious and the clerical ideal of doing of giving up fam, um, husband, wife, family for the sake of the kingdom of God with a firm belief that if there's not a life after death, then of what use is the life that we have now? It's, it's, not, it's not productive. It's not fruitful. And we're not living it out of a desire. I remember one time um, Monsignor Woltz um, in class said something about, um, you know, gentlemen, I hope you didn't come to the seminary to be celibates, he said, because unless you have the obvious holiness of uh, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, there's something wrong with you. It's not something that is natural to us. It's something that we do in order to provide a witness to the church and a service to the church to emphasize the church's confidence and belief in the second coming of the Lord, the existence of the kingdom, and the certitude of life after death. Without that, the church is less than it was before. And so that in no way, shape, or form impinges upon the married vocation which is the normative vocation within Christianity. And it is that which keeps the church alive on earth as a witness from age to age to age in order to that the church might still exist up until the end of time when Jesus says, Behold, I am with you all days to the consummation of the world. If it wasn't for the married Christians, Jesus could not fill that, 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 that promise. And... And so the, the fam, the Christian marriages and Christian families become part of this eschatological task. The focus is not so much on the future as it is on the present, which has to happen as well. We can't live oblivious of the present age. Yet at the same time, <clears throat> it's that which generates the life of the church in order to carry her into the final ages and be a witness to all humanity, an anchor within the world of a hope and a promise of eternal life, of a hope and a promise of the coming of the Lord, 
of something that brings everything to a, to a consummation, which is beneficial and great and, and fortuitous for the world. All those things have to exist together. As soon as we individualize this idea of believing and see it only as personal, and not as a communal, corporate entity as well, then, first of all, we make no sense of religious life. We make no sense of the celibate life. Um, We make no sense of the virtue of poverty, as St. Francis chose to live it, and as the religious tend to live it in in obedience to this cellular possessions, Um, as a way of sustaining the image of, of the primitive church within the Church of the Ages, it has to be a whole, and that without the religious, without the monastics, without the celibates, without the married and the familial people, the church is not complete. It's not whole. And and in not being complete and not whole, we could we know we could sell our possessions and we could be celibates, and the church would die. And it is therefore the lay vocation which gives the Church its enduring life in the world. Crucial, critical, and important. I know in the uh, Diocese of Columbus, um, Bishop Fernandez wants to emphasize the uh, importance of vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Um, Understanding, of course, that, that the vocation to to marry life and family is, is, we already kind of presume that is a value. But there's a great deal, there's the dearth of vocation shows us there's a great deal of difficulty in people accepting, because we have been reformationized, I suppose, in our society, to the degree where we're afraid that to lose someone to religious life or to the celibate priesthood is somehow or other a total lack, a total kind of waste and that was always kind of a joke. Well, isn't she a waste or isn't he a waste and so forth, which is silly. But the fact is, if we really understood and really believed that these vocations are what makes us as a people whole, then you could see it as a tremendous contribution to the well-being of humanity, the well-being of the church, and a contribution which helps also to strengthen and in, enhance and enforce, and some way not enforce, but enhance in some way the vocation to marriage and the vocation to familial life. I think that, um, you know, we, we have a, I remember, I know oftentimes, you know, at, at preaching first mass for newly ordained priests, that inevitably someone is offended when you emphasize the priesthood. Well, what about us? Well, without you, of course, we wouldn't be here, first of all. But secondly, that's, that makes no sense. That make, because without the laity, there are no clergy and there are no religious. And without the religious and without the clergy, there's going to be a much smaller, weaker, and ineffective witness to the coming of the kingdom of God. We see that all the time. And if we want to emphasize that religion is only about the here and now and how I feel and what makes me happy and what inspires me and all of that kind of thing, then we miss the point. 
then you know then then religion is a failure for us and then we become well i'm i'm a spiritual person i don't believe in organized religion which means you don't believe in submitting to anybody else except yourself and and that's not the vision that Jesus has in the New Testament at all. That's not in any way, shape, or form consistent or compatible with the story of Revelation from the very beginning until the contemporary times. These things are not things that, uh, this idea is not something that comes anywhere from the Lord in anything he ever said to us and in anything he ever did for us. He is always the little flock Okay, we're always a flock. We're always we're always a community. We're always some way, shape, or form, where we're kind of um, <clears throat> referred to together in the scriptures. Jesus singles out, interestingly enough, singling out people is usually is usually to criticize them or to condemn them, um, you know. And he says, "But as for the servant who says to himself, my master is taking his time coming,' and sets about beating him." men servants and maids and eating and drinking getting drunk and so forth he's sing he's singling out the 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 errant um individuals within this community and saying essentially that they're going to be cut off and that they're not going to be part because they're not a healthy part of the whole body Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians, and he emphasizes it throughout his writings. And the Lord always speaks to us in groups. He always speaks to us as a community, not to destroy individualism and not to destroy personality or anything like that, but just to say without one another we are incomplete. And what's interesting to me is that postmodern philosophy has come to understand that too. It's come the full circle from the radical individualism of the 18th, 19th century, and even up into the 20th century, and through modernity, where the emphasis is always on the me, the I. Um, even the postmoderns have come to the point now where they're saying, without the other in your life, another in your life, you are incomplete. Without all of these pieces of the whole, we are incomplete as a people, as a community. And so for someone to give their lives to keep the health of the community alive and to keep it vibrant and growing and so forth so that everyone benefits is not a waste. It's, it's something that's necessary, something the Lord asks us for, and something that helps move the whole church into that era of time when Jesus says, I'm with you to the consummation of the world. So this is important for us. And I think that this gospel, well, I have not really gone through it in, in, in a lot of very particular ways. It's a time to put the whole church together as a whole. It's a time to see it all together as a whole, to understand its individual parts are not competing with one another. They are complementary to one another. The religious life, the celibate priesthood, the familial family vocations, all contribute to one another to bring health to all of those places and to therefore, in sharing the fullness of the Christian witness, to be a more complete entity in the world. When we lose that, when we move into this privatization of religion, when we move into this breakdown of the whole, we find ourselves in deep trouble. And, uh, and rightly so, because we're not living according to the gospel of the Lord. So if anyone, you know, says to you, 
um, you know, I feel like I have a call to the priesthood, or I feel like I have a call to religious life. See that as a gift to yourselves and a gift to the whole community, to the whole people. Just as when a couple marries and commits themselves to family life, they're enhancing the life of the religious and the clergy as well. So pray that we have this whole vision and in that vision become more open to the whole idea of all vocations that are available within the church, knowing and understanding that they contribute to one another and that they help to make the whole healthy and strong and useful as a witness in the world to those who do not yet believe. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.